week on Dig Me Out. We've had a couple albums like this, but there's just one song on the record where as soon as you hear it, like, I don't think I've ever heard this song, but I feel like I've heard it. Right. You it's know? so instantly identifiable yeah. and the melody is so universal. Tim and Jay review 300 by the stereo. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 173. We are in season four. And uh, believe it or not, we have another requested review. Requested, requested review. review. This one, Jay, is actually... This is... I guess it's sort of a request review. It's our, our previous suggestor and uh, winner of our contest over uh, um, on our iTunes page um, when we asked people to leave feedback on our iTunes page in the month of December for 2013. And then whoever did, we would throw them into a hat and pick a name. And by golly, Scott Russell Halgram was the one who uh, we picked left us some feedback so did you throw them in a hat or did you throw them in a hopper uh this is i have like a, a ball that has a, a crank on it and, you know like a, like an old school <laughs> yeah. lottery yeah yeah, yeah. Ball. yeah. And it's a hopper so, isn't it? so it's a hopper i guess i'm gonna google that while you set the show up please do so <laughs> we uh we got his request shortly thereafter and he requested that we check out a band called the stereo and their album, 300, and that's spelled out, 300. Three and then 100, not 300. So add this band to the list of bands which are hard to Google. Because the stereo yeah. is a uh, kind of a common word or phrase or whatever, you know. So... Uh, so when you Google Hopper and you do an image search, mm-hmm. you get a bunch of paintings of... Uh, Dennis Hopper? No, like 1950s kind of scenes and then like like nude women in the 1950s. Uh, was there a painter perhaps by uh, the name yes. of Hopper? Yes, it appears so. All right. Well, hopefully one of our, our fans will uh, write in with a detailed history of that particular painter because I'm not... I'm drawing a blank on who that is. I would have just assumed it was Dennis Hopper, but guess I'm wrong. He didn't show up one time. Yeah, there you go. If you if you uh, if you do lottery hopper, you get the little ball with the crank. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, I, I purchased it from a defunct lottery uh, uh, lottery official or not official. What do they call those? Um, not an official. I don't even remember which term term is a lotterist a lotterist yes <laughs> a lotteriet uh lotterian so the stereo was was the was the pick by scott jay have you heard of the had you heard of the stereo prior to uh, scott you know i <laughs> i want to say it sounds familiar but with a name that that uh familiar it's 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 hard not to say that uh no i mean for all all intents, intents and purposes here i don't think i have the album cover doesn't look familiar that's for sure 
I remembered the name. I think this is one of those bands where when I was flipping through, you know, CD racks in the late 90s, early 2000s, I probably saw this next to the stereo MCs and stereophonics and, you know, various other stereo bands. Right. Uh, but didn't take an opportunity to uh, listen to them. Uh, luckily, we're going to revisit uh, and uh, maybe we will right a wrong, perhaps. That was uh, was uh, that occurred in the past. But before we get into the album we're reviewing, let's talk about a little bit of the history of the stereo. History of the band. The band started in early 1999 by uh, former Animal Chin frontman, which was a ska punk band, uh, Jamie Wolford. And then uh, Rory Phillips of the band The Impossibles. So both of those bands were on the record label Fueled by Ramen. And the label suggested that the two get together, do some songwriting, and uh, maybe form a band. And they did. And that summer, they released their debut album, The 300. Or 300. There were a lot of lineup changes as far as the bass and drums went over the years including the departure of Rory Phillips. Uh, Their second album, No Traffic, came out in March of 2001. Uh, Third album, Rewind and Record, uh, June of 2002. The group is disbanded in 2004. Uh, Wolford and then bassist Chris Serafini formed the band Let Go. And in 2013, Wolford released his uh, solo album, A Framed Life in Charming Light. The band has gotten back together to play some shows. Uh, it's, again, with Jamie Wolford on vocals and guitar, Rory Phillips on vocals and guitar, Chris Serafini on bass, and Sam Hardwig on drums. So if you would like to suggest an album like Scott did for review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Scott was nice enough to give us some Facebook feedback on this record. He says, I'm probably biased as Jamie Wolford and I went to Arts High School together, but I love this album at first listen, and I still think it's one of my all-time favorites. I have a hard time understanding why this wasn't a massive hit. I think Jamie's previous band, Animal Chin, had a fame ceiling in part due to their Fugazi-esque insistence on only playing all-ages shows but I don't know if that policy continued with the stereo. I want to know what an arts high school is. Jay, do you know what that is? Uh, I would imagine it's for kids who are, introduced, are interested in the arts, right? But, like, can you just can you just avoid, like, history and math and all that stuff at an arts high school? Is it just, like, there's one class on poetry and one class on painting and one class on mixed media and... Like that probably. is it? Well, it's probably, and I'm, I'm sure theater and those sorts of music and that sort of stuff is all part of the curriculum. I want to well. go to. I want I should have gone to a high school like that. I was terrible at math and geography and science and social studies and foreign languages and every other. <laughs> you know what my good classes were? Art and newspaper. Those were yeah. my good classes. Yeah. Well, me too. I mean, I suppose uh, you probably have to test in some way or another. I would think, and then. But yeah, I, I, you know, to me, it's kind of what college is for. But being an art major, I, this is coming from an art major. But hey, good for them. Yeah, 
So let's get into the stereo and their 1999 debut album, 300. Let's do a little what I liked, what I didn't like about this record, Jay. Uh, there's 13 tracks. There's a lot of tracks to go through, so I feel like this is the best way to go. Uh, lead us off, Jay. Tell us one thing that you liked about this record. Hooks, hooks, hooks. Yes. Um, a lot of catchy stuff on here. A lot of really, really strong harmonies. Um, lots of nice guitar sort of accents and noodles and riffs and things. A lot of energy. And it's it's all done in a way though that's not too um precious precise exact it has a raggedness it has a little edge to it it has it has a band feel you know um mm-hmm. it's not over it's not over overthought and over um overdone which which helps I thought a lot of a band like the knack okay um just because not necessarily a, a ton in terms of the songwriting but just from the standpoint that, you know, this is pop rock and it's being presented by a band format, which I just, I just love that idea. You know, um, you just so rarely hear it now, even though a lot of the power pop punk pop that came out in the, in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands, it was so, I don't know, homogenized and so about like big guitar tone and the drums weren't very incredibly creative and, the vocal was, you know, super produced and mm-hmm. it just, it lost that, I don't know, that, that feeling of a live band and, uh, the roomy, the room feel of the, the production and, um, a lot of cool like drum accents and things that are, that are pretty fun. And also just, uh, I guess the last thing that uh, I really liked was just the drums overall. They, um, were fairly creative for this kind of music. You know, I think it'd be really easy to mail in, you know, standard beats and standard fills and or even just doing less accents and fills. Um, I think this type of music, you tend to see less of that. But that was one of the things about uh, the, the record that elevated it for me was that the the drums, not that they're, out, you know, it's not progressive rock or something here, but just it, there's some variety there and there's some interesting uh, little fills and and, um, and parts and it's gonna have some cool dynamics and takes on beats and things that I think make it just a little and, and the, maybe that comes from, I don't know drum wise where this uh, what band's coming from whether who the drummer is or how they how it relates to Animal Chin but it, it almost has like a ska kind of sensibility to it in that way but not in an annoying way mm-hmm. <laughs> how ska ska drums at least for me can be pretty annoying. Um, it just has a little bit of that that flavor of being um, just not a typical, just straight up rock drummer. So, yeah, those are some of the st- things that I really liked. What about you? Well, I agree with you on the hooks. I mean, this album starts out with four just you know blazing pop punk hook filled songs, and I think that the thing that really hooked me in terms of this record is how fast they get to those hooks. I think in over half the album, the vocal starts less than 10 seconds into the song. And oftentimes they're starting with the chorus, which is just a brilliant way to get you, you know, hooked into the song. There's not like, you know, minute long guitar intros or there's a couple songs where they, they take it a little slower and they're just like a piano part. 
but even in those cases there's they get to the vocal really fast and i think you know it's half the album it's like 10 seconds and then maybe another quarter of the album it's like 20 seconds i think there's maybe only two or three songs where it takes more than 20 seconds to get the vocal started mm-hmm. and it just it present it or it gives you this sense of like urgency and everything is boom 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 it's it's really smacking with the face with like here comes the next big hook here comes the next big melody here comes the guitar part that's gonna like get sink into your brain for a little bit um they do an excellent job of just constantly coming up with you know like you're saying there was a saturate this 99 it hadn't happened yet but there was definitely a saturation point for this pop punk sort of um sound that i think a lot of bands were pulling from equally Weezer and and Blink-182 by, you know, the late 90s um, in terms of that really poppy major chord, you know, movement that was happening um, almost in a, almost like a backlash to grunge in a lot of ways because it was so poppy and so not dour and not uh, depressing. Uh, it embraced pop music in a way that grunge music never did. Um, you know, there was obviously hooks and, and melodies that people gravitated towards with grunge, but it was a much different sort of you know, aesthetic. Um, but with the hooks that are, you know, I mean, mentioned with Blink-182 and Weezer, specifically the first Weezer record I'm thinking of, um, I could see if, you know, if you were like 12 or 13 when that first Weezer record came out and then when this comes out like 99 98 you're you know 17 18 this is you almost grunge almost is like classic rock at that point mm. for you yeah in in a lot of ways and then you get you know the other aspect of it is then you get the emo bands like get up kids and saves the day who are doing their own sort of version of uh you know the that pop punk with the you know the emo side of it so um and I like that this doesn't devolve into a straight up emo record. Um, there are some aspects of it that remind me of it. I'm thinking like track six, Ramona, which is one of my favorite songs on the record. as the way that the record starts out but it has a really good hook on it and um, it made me subconsciously think about and then consciously uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world Jay yeah. have you seen so it made me think of that mm. part where uh, where um, he's singing uh, Ramona over and over again just changing the chords uh, mm. to Mary Elizabeth Winstead I was actually hoping that that was this song 
but it was like the full version of that mm. song. Um, but I, I think there are very few. I think the other thing is there are very few missteps on this record in terms of both the how they write the songs, the whether the length of the songs. They're if they are if it feels like it's going to be a short song, it's a short song. You can kind of get that up front, like you know when it, when that pop chorus hits and it's a up tempo song, you know you're looking at probably only a two and a half to three minute long song. But then they stretch it out on some other songs. Uh, probably my favorite of those that they stretch out on is Divine, the last track. Um, it's a bit of a departure, and I, but I think it's the best representation of a departure for the band. Uh, I think they try it on a couple other songs, and it doesn't work as successfully. Uh, but I thought it worked really well on Divine, and it actually shows that they're, they were a lot more than just a pop punk band in terms of their songwriting abilities and talents. Um, so you're, you're okay with the piano songs? So, please try to understand, which has the Sesame Street kind of beat to it. Uh-huh. I didn't really, it didn't really jive with me. I didn't really care for that one that much. Um, and then there's the one I think it's Problems. Yeah, I thought it was okay. It's it's an all right, you know, middle of the album track. Um, it's only three. It's not even three and a half minutes long, so it didn't really bother me that much. But I did yeah. like the grandiose aspect of Divine. Like it has this almost like seventies classic rock feel to it. <laughs> uh yeah. So I, I guess the things I don't I don't like would be these piano songs. Mm-hmm. You know, they just feel yeah, the first one, it's like a Sesame Street song or something. It's just yeah. It goes or a like a poor interpretation of Ben Folds. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a Ben Folds song. Um and what it did was, I think the worst part about all three of them, really for me, was that it shows the, it's all of a sudden exposes the limita- the talent limitations of this band. Whereas on the other songs, not, it's not an issue for me. It's, it's fine. Like his vocal is fine. It's, it's good enough for the type of material they're doing. They play guitar great. You know, when they strip down and try to do these piano songs, whether they're, serious about him or not it just raises the question of you know his vocal abilities and the piano parts aren't that good i mean they're fine but they're not you know it's not like ben folds playing piano here no and the rest of the band doesn't have as much to do so you lose start to lose some of the band aspects and they start bringing in like uh, problems brings in like a cello and then divine gets even more grandiose um to me <laughs> divine sounds like uh, like a, an album track off of a 80s sticks album <laughs> which is just so uh, it's so weird i mean it's kind of in a way it's kind of goofy and fun i think if you didn't have five and seven please try to understand the problems if you didn't yeah. t- if you didn't have those on the record and then divine was just this like insanely left field Closing yeah. track. Yeah. I think it would work a lot better. I agree. I, I could I could get on board with it as kind of a, a fun way to end the album and just yeah, like you said, a, just a total curveball. But the fact that there's three three of them on here, it you start to question. You know, this is obviously a direction the band's trying to take, and you know, it's not. Uh, I don't think terribly successful. Not that the, not it's not even that the songs are bad. You know, I think actually the songs are pretty decent. 
which is what makes it weird. So like problems, I could hear like super drag totally pulling that song off, mm-hmm. you know, on, on one of the early albums. Um, it's just the, this band doesn't have the, whatever the, the, the acumen on this, this set of instruments and this type of music to pull off the song. Um, right. In other hands, I think they could actually be pretty damn good. I mean, even divine, like if you had a really strong singer, like I said, like, you know, a Dennis DeYoung or something, all of a sudden that song takes on a whole new, um, a whole new feel. So that was a big misstep for me. I think there's, um, just vocally, there's sometimes on the record, I guess the only other thing I, I didn't love was that um, vocally, sometimes on the record, the the, the, the guitars aren't uh, quite I'm loud enough for the vocals too up front. So like Devotion, the first song on the, on the record, I mean, it's a great song. I just wish the vocal was pulled back a little bit. And hmm. um, there's some other times on the record where that happens, like the vocal just really stands forward. If you have a moment to spare for He's also has some limitations and you just he comes up just a tad bit flat when he when he when he gets a little bit louder or hits certain notes and it doesn't bother me at all when it's mixed in with the guitars. Sort of in the way Weezer is, you know what I mean? Like his vocal isn't always pristine right. and perfect, but the guitars are so freaking loud that it's fine. You know, it all works together. There's times in this record where um, that's quite that mix quite doesn't uh, come come together right and uh I'm, I'm left, you know, kind of focused on his vocal. Um, I guess the only, uh, the last thing, I guess in regards to that, that I would have a complaint about, there are times where it gets really Weezer-esque, like too much, almost. Um, let me see if I can pull a song out here. The answer to this has some Weezer in it, but I actually liked it. Um, I think You Can't Go Home is a song I have here in my notes that is just too over the top um, in terms of the sounding like Weezer. Um, yeah, so, that chorus definitely has. Yeah. yeah. So there's times when that kind of gets in the way of enjoying the record. Just uh, it starts to become a little too derivative for me. But uh, all in all, I mean, that's that's not there's no deal breakers there. There's an, The songs are short enough too that uh, it's pretty easy to just have fun with it. Well, it's funny you mentioned dance to this because that was one of the songs where I didn't really care for that like clean jangle that he's doing in the in the verses. It got a little annoying and repetitive, I guess. I mean, it just it's just going on and on. But when he gets to the chorus and he goes to the halftime, I was like, oh, this is more interesting. Yeah, you know what? I, I like that. Um, I think the drums are really cool in that verse, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it interesting for me. And then I like that it's one of the few songs in the record where 
the structure is a, a little bit um, different. So they hang on that verse for almost two minutes before they come into that big halftime chorus. Most of the other songs, I think, like you mentioned, they either start with a chorus or they, you know, they get to a hook pretty quick and they, so a couple of them even, the, the verses and choruses are short, so short, you basically just alternate between the two parts for, you know, two minutes and the song's over. There may, may be a bridge or an outro at the end. So right. I kind of dug that um, there was so much of a focus on the drums and the intro and the verse um, and it was so restrained and then that it opened up into this big uh, halftime, you know, wall of guitar sound chorus. I just, it was kind of refreshing at that point in the album that you're, you know, 10 songs in, it's kind of kind of nice to hear a format change. In terms of the, you had mentioned about, you know, the hooks and, and how hooky this record is. And I, I also did too. But do you think in terms of a, I guess, a radio band, I feel like it's either like you mentioned with the production or whether the hooks were really big enough as to why this band didn't necessarily um, break through because you know 99 that's the prime time to be a band with this sound you know what what was the missing ingredient do you think that because um, there were a lot of bands that were doing well with this sort of sound in 99 I thought a band like horse and the later band, um, the Fags, that Horse became. Uh, when I listened to this, because the 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 hooks are more of a while while it has you know an alternative, a little bit of an alternative edge to the sort of the production. There's nothing alternative about the the songwriting, you know, the lyrics, the it's all pretty straightforward pop rock almost in more of an early, that's how I was saying like more of an early eighties kind of vibe than a nineties kind of vibe. And that, that's the way I think of horse and, and the fags as well. So they're more about, I mean, they're closer to Rick Springfield and Brian Adams than they are to, or the knack than they are to Nirvana, <laughs> you know? So, mm-hmm. I think that's why at that time this didn't make it. It didn't. Yeah, it's hooky, but it didn't have the radio sound. You know what I mean? It didn't have the stereotypical things you need. You needed to be closer to uh, yeah, Blink One Eighty Two, which has got um, more of a punk kind of feel to it. Um, even though it's super glossy, you know, um, even lyrically, uh, and they're not. I don't consider them in that ballpark. You know, the bands that they that they remind me of were not cool at that time. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're cool now, but you know, these you know that that kind of early '80s stuff I don't think was the sound of that time. So, I, I, in a way, it's like parts of it are very on par, but I think to some people they could kind of hear it as being a little bit off from what they would expect. Or you know, radio rock. That, that's gotcha. that that's my that's my point of view. I don't know. Okay, because it's One certainly thing. hooky enough. <laughs> yeah, like she One. would never track two. I mean, geez. Oh yeah, that's, that's that's one of those songs we've we've done. We've had a couple albums like this where there's just one song on the record where as soon as you hear it, like I don't think I've ever heard this song, but I feel like I've heard it. Right, you it's know? so instantly identifiable, yeah. and the melody is so universal. Yep. 
So the interesting thing in researching this record, going off a tangent, is they were on Fueled by Ramen, which I always thought it was kind of a small indie label. I mean, um, bands like Less Than Jake and Jimmy Eat World and um, some other Fallout Boy had, was on the, and obviously the the two bands that the two songwriters came from, Animal Chin and The Impossibles. I always thought of them as sort of like a middle of the road uh, indie ra- indie label. If you look at their lineup now, it's pretty impressive. So they have Paramore, Panic at the Disco, Fun, Young the Giant. I mean, those are some in terms of bands that are, you know, doing well. That the kids like. That the kids like. They dance to. <laughs> Yeah, Gym Class Heroes is another one. I've, I've heard of them, but I have not heard of heard Gym Class Heroes. So, Cobra Starship is another one. Heard of them? Not haven't heard them, but I know that they're popular with the the young folk. Uh, it seems like uh, the Fueled by Ramen Ramen people are uh, hitting on some pretty popular popular bands. So, just an interesting, you know, I, I think of Fun and Young the Giant as being some two of the biggest. Uh, I guess rock acts, or I don't know if you even classify them in that genre right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, it used to be like you knew what labels, like oh, that band's on Sony, or that band's on Epic, sure. or that band's on Atlantic. Like, I had no idea that those bands. Fun's been around for you know a couple years. Same thing with Young the Giant. No idea they were on Feel by Robin. I felt like some of those you listed off fall into the like third generation or you know maybe fifth generation emo fifth generation pop, pop punk genre though that, but mm-hmm. the, there are a few that are outside so maybe they're you know i could see a strategy there where they're staying with what's comfortable or what they're known for but then also augmenting it with some new stuff that's outside the box right their format but yeah i mean that's a pretty pretty impressive uh, roster yeah i hope they are uh lining the uh Executive suites at the Fueled by Ramen World Headquarters with uh, <laughs> with gold uh, gold accoutrements and. <laughs> but do you feel like this band would fit in, you know, with that? Looking at what that label's known for, I mean, does this band fit? Where does that this band fit into that? In terms of them previously having been the home for Fallout Boy and Yellow Card and Jimmy World, I th- I think that they fit in. The Academy is. You know, some of these bands, I think they, they fit right in with. Um, obviously, with bands like Fun or Paramore, I don't necessarily think they fit in with, with those bands. They're not that far off from, you know, still playing guitars and playing rock music, but just a different take on it. Yeah, I guess I just, I don't see them as being emo enough to be um, Jimmy World and not pop punk enough to be Fall Boy. Right, and that's probably where the where the lack of success came from. Is like, what tour are you putting these guys on? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it becomes a little bit of a challenge to figure out their what niche they're gonna fall under, and obviously they didn't find the right one. So let's get to our overall review for the three uh, for the Stereos album 300J would you rate this as a worthy album a better EP or a decent single I'm at an album I would trim off the the three piano tunes it's gonna get you a nice uh, what uh, you'd be at 10 songs there you'd be pretty short you know I don't 
that point, the longest song would be four minutes. Most of them are in the two and a half to three minute range. Uh, I think there's some of the remaining songs that are certainly better than others, but it all fits together really well. I think the remaining material, minus the piano tunes, uh, they they all make sense to each other. There's a couple variations on uh, tempo and just writing style. Um, I also think the vocal, uh, we can talk about this, but felt like the, through the first four songs, it almost seemed like there was a different singer at some point or he was changing his voice enough that it was becoming almost taking on a new sound. It was, hmm. It's weird. Like, I think the vast majority of it, it sounds like the same guy, but there's a couple songs in here, maybe 300 is one, where it starts to sound like somebody else, which is actually, you know, kind of nice for, for a band that's, for the most part, you know, um, the songs are very, you know, very similar, very close together in terms of format and style. So, right, yeah, I mean, I think you'd have a pretty, pretty fun power pop record at, at ten songs, and I'd be, I'd be happy with it. I agree with you. I, I'd leave on, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I'd leave Divine on as the as the closing track and trim off a, 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 the other piano songs and maybe one or two of the other ones, which I feel like aren't as strong up tempo songs as as the rest of the record. But I'd be at nine or ten songs and be completely happy with this as an album. I think it's, I think at that point you have such a tight little record that, um, it it definitely it would be a worthy record for people to check out. So especially that those first four songs, they start out the record are just like boom, 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 just smash you over the head with, you know, these anthems almost. Mm-hmm. So and not, neither none of them are more than two forty five. I mean, 300, the song is not even two minutes long. And yeah, I mean, it's just a barrage that they hit you with. Yeah, there's a lot like track two. She would never. There's a lot of song crammed in two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, when you uh, as you're listening to it, there's a lot of parts and there's a lot of dynamics and a lot of different. I mean, it's not just the chorus that's hooky. And uh, when you get to the end of it it's kind of shocking when you look at the count because you're like geez i thought this would have been like close to a four minute long song but it's not not in a way that's like seems you know laborious or anything it's just it's just seems there's just a lot lot going on and it's only two and a half minutes it's kind of there's a lot of parts and they move to the each of those parts very fluidly yeah and they only really play those parts like one or two times in you know in a row they go back to them Mm -hmm. but they're not playing like you know a a chord progression four times in a row like you would expect in a lot of songs yeah it's it's really much more compact really tight really smart i i'm kind of shocked this this the songwriters here didn't have it written for other people i wouldn't be surprised if they did because pretty good pretty good songwriting from a just a you know pop rock standpoint pretty solid well, Jay, they might have because, uh, you know, sometimes we just don't know it. Uh, one yep. of the things I recently learned is that uh, if you're uh, if you have a young child, you might be familiar with the hot dog song as sung by the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. Uh, do you know who wrote the Mickey Mouse uh, hot dog song, Jay? They might be giants. They might be giants. Yeah. Yeah. So there might be a career for uh, uh, Jamie and Rory of uh, the stereo that we're not aware of writing uh, Disney anthems or, <laughs> or some other, you know, <laughs> collaborating with various other uh, folks on their albums. But Oh, uh, so, something else we didn't talk about? Mm-hmm. Harmonies. A lot of good harmonies on this record. 
I mean, for the vo- for the lead vocal at times being, you know, it's it's competent and fine, but it's not mm-hmm. like stellar. Um, the harmonies are really good. Um, Which you got to have on a, on a record like this, I think. Yep. To yep, really definitely. sell that vocal, and you have to have those layers of vocals mm-hmm. to to really punch through. Yeah, you know what? It made me think of. There's a power pop band from Columbus. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. We played with them a couple times. But anyway, the point is being, I could never get into that band because they're trying to do this, but they don't have the harmonies. And when you don't have the harmony, like it, the choruses just end up being flat. You know, right. it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't trigger, you know what I mean? The right, right, the right vibe. It doesn't take you to the right place. Um, there's just something. It's a requirement almost to, to be able to do it. Oh, um, Earwig. Okay. You remember that band? Yeah, good songwriters, right. good good musicians, but didn't right. necessarily have the full vocal complement to pull off the power pop sound. Right. What you're talking about. Yeah. Good band in their own right, but not uh, to this level. The, the one, uh, the last thing I wanted to mention, I was walking through uh, Home Depot this morning as we're recording this. This, this morning and um, I heard I think it was SR71 was the band what? I think that, yeah do you remember the band SR71 oh my god I'm looking and it up now barely did they have a yeah. song like Dirty Little Secret was that their song? maybe that wasn't the name of the wow. band there's an SR71 on Spotify and their top song is something called Right Now Okay, then. It was, so, can you can you look up "Dirty Little Secret"? Can find out what band sang that? Dirty little, isn't that uh, Jackal? Oh, that's no, Dirty Little not, Mind. No, that's not Jackal. Katie Katie is walking out of the laundry room and she is singing that. Dirty Little Secret. Yeah. All American Rejects have a song. All American called. Rejects. There you go. And it I've made me think of this band when we were. Our dirty little yes. SR71. I can't believe you remember that band. Them and the other band that came to mind in listening to this was um, uh, Hi-Fi. What was it called? Oh, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that yeah. band? I'm looking it up. They had that Freak of the Week song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were big for... They, yeah, they, they, there was a, it was a point where... Uh, American Power, Hi-Fi. American Hi-Fi, where... You got your SR-71s and your American Hi-Fis, and they had, like, one song, and it became, like, another one of those gold rushes of power pop, you know, or, or punk pop bands. Yeah. And, unfortunately, this band was not able to uh, cash in on that, but... Uh, well, American hi is one of those bands where it's, like, they come out of nowhere, and they had... I feel like they had a couple hits, and they were sort of a big deal for, like, at least a year, and then they just disappeared. Yeah. Like, what... <laughs> Okay, wasn't it uh, the? It was like the drummer from Letters to Cleo or something. Was the singer in the band and for American Hi-Fi? Yeah, that was the drummer from Ruka Salt. Ruka Salt, and, and he, I think he was also in Letters to Cleo. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, if you watch uh, Parks and Rec, Letters to Cleo just appeared on the season finale oh. of Parks and Rec Jeez. in a fantastic cameo. Because huh. if you're if you watch the show, the character Ben Wyatt wears a, a Letters to Cleo shirt multiple times on the show. So in the season finale Unity concert in the unifying the two cities of Pawnee and Eagleton, 
they get letters to Cleo to play the Unity concert, and uh, he, of course, wears <laughs> wears the letters to Cleo T-shirt on the side of the stage like a dork. Okay. Uh, so, by the way, next week on Dig Me Out, letters to Cleo, uh, we'll be doing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Maybe in the future, though. I don't know if we can yeah. get them now. See, that's a band I would have liked to have interviewed. Uh, but now that they've been on Parks yeah. and Rec, I don't know that they're available for a little podcast like us. Sure. So if anybody has any uh, ins to the Letters to Cleo camp, uh, let us know. So a big uh, deal now. Yeah, they're, you know. So also featured appearances by uh, Yola Tengo as... Um, uh, what was the name of the band? It was like Bobby Knight's Sweater Vest. They played a fake uh, Night Ranger cover band or something like that. And then there was a Jeff Tweedy uh, as like a rock, uh, a former rock star f- for a band called Land Ho who reunited just for the Unity concert. It was quite, if you don't watch Parks and Rec, it's totally worth it for just for that episode because of all the musical fun that was had. So when you look up Letters to Cleo on Spotify, their uh-huh. number one most popular song. Here and now? No. What? Cover of I Nope. Cover of I Want You to Want Me off the uh, 10 Things I Hate About You soundtrack. Oh. They're, they're yeah, second is here and now. And Julia Stiles. Nope. The third is a cover of Cruel to Be Kind. Nick, the Nicholas oh, oh. song. That's kind of, it's, it's too bad because they're not getting paid for those. <laughs> I guess they're getting, you know, yeah. mechanicals, but that's not, that's nothing on, you know, on Spotify. No. Nope. You barely get paid for the period. If you strip it down to just the mechanicals, that's, yeah, not a whole lot of money. Yeah. That's why uh, cover bands don't make any money recording. It's yeah. all about the live performance. Yeah. All right, anyway. then. Well, I think we have covered the stereo. We need to thank Scott Russell Halgram for suggesting this album to us. And if you'd like to, to like, if you would like to suggest an album for us to review, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com to our request review page. You can see what has been requested and uh, how many spots are left for the year. I think we've already used up half the spots already, Jay. So um, people need to get their suggestions in. Of course, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at our iTunes page. We'd greatly appreciate it. Help us uh, get some um, climb the rankings there. I don't know where we're at, but probably uh, not in the top ten. I think NPR has that covered with all their podcasts. And uh, that's it for us. We want to thank all of our listeners, whether you're listening on uh, iTunes, Podbean, Radio.io, or Stitcher, we appreciate you checking us out. Be sure to check out digmeoutpodcast.com every day for news and updates. I'm Tim. For Jay, we're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. It's mine, my heart.